I'm just uh, giving you a heads up. Um, let's uh, let's uh, begin in prayer. Lord, we thank you that uh, the Word of God is comprehensive. It is adequate and sufficient to deal with every aspect of life as far as it applies to what it means to live a life that's pleasing to you and to live a holy life. And we thank you, Lord, your word is a guide. It is light for our feet and helping us know how to navigate through a very, very, very dark world in which we live. And so we ask that your word would have its way among us. It would land in hearts that are receptive and that we would be edified and build up in our faith. We would all appreciate and be more, even more satisfied with Christ as a result. We pray in his name. Amen. If we are sincere about the idea of seeking personal revival, of being involved in a process of truly seeking God, then it seems to me we must be willing to open our lives in a comprehensive way. In other words, perhaps some of you are familiar with the booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's written by Robert Munger. It's a very good read. If you've never read it, you should uh, obtain a copy of it. Um, In this little booklet, Munger makes the analogy that Christians are to make Christ at home in our hearts, based on a passage there in Ephesians 3.16. And he says, basically, that we are to welcome and invite Jesus into every room of the house of our hearts. This would include our thought life. This would include our financial life. It would include our social life. And yes, it includes even our sex life. That when we confess Jesus as Lord, God's goal is to take all the elements of our lives and the ones that are unholy, and he seeks to make them holy. His plan is not to settle for some sort of selective process of sanctification. In other words, welcoming Jesus is not to be done just in the living room of our life, just in the den of our life or the kitchen of our life. It is to be involved in inviting Jesus into the closets of our hearts, into the attics of our hearts, into the basements of our hearts, so that therefore we can remove all that's dishonoring to him and that we might put our hearts into right order for the glory of his name. And so God's plan is to replace every sinful habit with a holy habit that pleases him. And the result would be a life that honors and glorifies him and that our hearts would find our greatest joy, our greatest and ultimate satisfaction in Christ. So seeking God then involves this idea of this comprehensive welcoming of Christ Jesus into the most intimate and private parts of our lives. It means surrendering the keys to the compartments of our hearts, especially those areas that we tend to want to keep hidden, those areas that we want to keep sort of locked away. Areas like sexual sin. You see, the scriptures make it very clear that Jesus' love refuses, refuses to ignore the danger of sexual sin. He leads his people toward wholeness. He leads his people toward help, uh, holiness by helping us navigate through this minefield of sexual temptation. 
And he wants his people to escape the deception, which is so pervasive, and the depravity of the world's philosophy, and to live a hope-filled life, a holy life, in anticipation of Jesus' return. I say that based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, which is really the, the uh, introductory elements leading into this portion of what we're looking at this morning in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bible or if you have your pad, iPad in front of you, if you've got some sort of uh, phone that you have an application of looking at the Bible, I hope you have it open there to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because in this passage we find God's high and holy call to sexual purity. And in this passage, we find three essential components to holy living. Number one, holy living adheres to unchanging sexual standards. Unchanging sexual standards. Secondly, holy living adopts practical, practical strategies. We're going to look at those just very briefly as the text unfolds them. And thirdly, holy living advances with godly motives. So the first point here, the idea of unchanging sexual standards. As we come to this text, we must understand the backdrop of life in first century, first century Roman culture was similar in many ways to our modern culture today. Sexual promiscuity was widespread. Pretty much anything was permitted and practiced in that day. I would let you be aware, you probably know this, but in that first century culture, it was available to have sex for hire. There was sex involved in other people's spouses. You could have sex with minors, sex with unmarried people, and sex with people of the same sex, which was widely practiced in the first culture. And there was religious sex with a temple prostitute. It's clear that unrestrained sexual freedom was widely accepted at that time as the cultural norm. I don't need to tell you, obviously, that we have pretty much the same today. The main difference for us in our culture is that we add one more element to that. We add the element of digital sex, in which we have a billion, with a B, billion-dollar porn industry, we have sexting, we have apps on our phones like Tinder, swiping one way or another, looking for people that we can uh, supposedly become sexually intimate with. We have a sex-crazed media that promotes and celebrates any and all forms of unrestricted sexual expression or behavior. Indeed, we are finding that the philosophy set forth by the late Hugh Hefner who promoted this element of unrestrained hedonism that insists that you throw off all restraint when it comes to sexual behavior. And therefore, he contributed, I believe, along with many other forces and other influences, into the sexual revolution. And so now what we have is total sexual permissiveness, period. That's where we are. That's where they were in the first century. And so Paul ministered in this town, Roman town of Thessalonica. He was only there for a short period of time, several weeks, not even hardly months or uh, extended period of time or years. It was just a couple of weeks. And so into this sex-saturated culture, 
Paul ministers the gospel. A small band of people come together as Christian. Paul has to leave town quickly, so he's writing them back in this letter concerned about the pervasive pressure they're experiencing in this area of sexual permissiveness. And he's reminding the people of God, listen, you must pursue God's will for your life in this particular setting in which you live. God's plan for your life is not unrestricted sexual freedom. That's what he's emphasizing in the text. Rather, it is holiness of life, which requires of God's people radical nonconformity in a sex-crazed, anything-goes culture. He's calling believers to radical nonconformity to the pervasive culture they live in. Look at verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, is another way of saying that. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, having set that forth, we need to back up and just say very clearly from the start that God created humans as sexual beings. It's His design. God is very positive. He's a very, uh, he is a God who has an incredible design of making us sexual beings. And His will is not that all sexual expression be prohibited. In other words, God is not a person of killjoy in all aspects of sexual expression, not at all. God's design, however, for a life that pleases Him limits sexual intimacy to a monogamous covenant marriage between a husband and a wife. So limiting sexual expression to the heterosexual marriage bed is God's design for His glory and for our good. Now, I base that on many passages, but we could start with just Genesis 2.24, which is God's pattern set forth in the Garden of Eden, but even Hebrews 13.3 and many others. As a matter of fact, I would just throw in four purposes of sex that I believe God has in mind when He designed it. First is, and by the way, this is from the book taken from uh, What is the Meaning of Sex? A very good book by Denny Burke, which uh, you're more welcome to borrow or uh, you can buy on your own. Four purposes of sex. It is the, cons- is the purpose is to consummate marriage. That is, a person is not married till that marriage is truly consummated in intimacy, one, one uh, flesh relationship. Second purpose of sex is procreation. The third is an expression of love that is deep and profound, very intimate. And fourthly is for pleasure, obviously. And the overarching purpose of sex is for the glory of God. And so in all this context of God and His plans, We must understand that unrestrained sexual sin outside the bonds of a husband-wife marriage union dishonors and distorts God's design. It also defrauds those who practice such things. In some ways, they're getting ripped off. They don't understand that's not what it's designed to do. And lastly, for those who practice unrestrained sexual sin outside of the bonds of marriage, of heterosexual marriage, if they don't forsake it, that activity is damning. 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation 21, make that very, very clear. So, 
I want to use an analogy at this point, which I'm taking from Proverbs chapter 6. Think about what I've just been saying. The world says unrestrained sexual expression is okay anyway, anyhow, anytime with anybody. Well, let's think about fire for a second. Fire is a useful, beautiful, powerful form of energy. How many, of us, how many of us haven't enjoyed sitting at a campfire or a fire in a fireplace and just watch it mesmerized by the flames and the flickering? But the unrestrained and non-confined use of fire is what? Destructive. So if we do fire like this, I think I'm just going to put that in my shirt. Oh, no, better not. It belongs in a metal can, right? To make sure. Sorry about the smell. Sorry about the... But I think I made my point. I want to further expand that point. Again, in a brick fireplace with burners on a stove, with a fire pit in the ground, fires bring pleasure. They provide beauty. They provide heat. They provide light. But what would happen if someone insisted on the unrestrained use of fire? Like making a fire in the middle of your living room, on the floor. Or take a burning torch and carry it along with you in your car when you travel about. Or take and build a campfire in the middle of the forest, not in a clearing, and don't do any clearing on the ground with no fire pit. Just make a fire in the middle of the forest on a windy day. You just don't do that. Why? Because like fire, we would understand that sex is best expressed within the limitations that God has proscribed. Again, I urge you to reread Proverbs 5 and 6 and 7. And those points are very well made by the writer of Proverbs. See, God's plan for sexual intimacy is not outdated. Hear me on this. God's design for sexual intimacy is not outdated. His design isn't in need of being revised somehow. His standards for sexual holiness and wholeness have remained the same from the Garden of Eden till today. And God's call to his people is to make a clean break from all forms of sexual intimacy outside the confines of a monogamous, one-flesh relationship between a husband and a wife. And God's plan for you and for me is clearly spelled out in the Scriptures. His sexual standards don't have a 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever version you want of his particular kinds of sexual standards. No. The church that Paul wrote in Corinth, which could have been called, in a sense, the Amsterdam of first century Roman Empire, Paul wrote there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, flee immorality, run away from it. And the word he uses there in the Greek is the word it sounds like, where we get the word pornography, pornea is the, is the word he uses, flee pornea. It's a broad term. It means any kind of sexual sin. Fornication, sex between unmarried people, adultery, sex between people who are married. It means uh, 
uh, prostitution, it means homosexual sin. It's a very broad term. He says, flee all that. Instead, he says, of asking the question, how close can I get to the lines of sexual immorality without breaking somehow God's standards, the writers of the New Testament are encouraging the people of God to what? Draw the lines clearly, make sure you don't go near those lines, and involve yourself in total, complete abstinence outside the bonds of marriage. Here's a verse I would encourage you to write down that should be compared to the ones we're looking at here in 1 Thessalonians 4, and that's Ephesians 5.3. Ephesians 5.3. Do not let immorality, there's the same word, pornea, or any, uh, any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints, as is proper among people who are set apart and holy to God. So I go back and I ask the big question. What is the goal of your life? Is the goal of your life to please God? Is it to live a holy life according to His revealed will to you? Then you must make a clean break from any form of sexual sin. Any form of sexual immorality. Just stop. Are you trying to have it both ways? And there are many people who do. They give lip service to Jesus and they give their bodies to sexual sin. Now I think that's pretty clear. I don't think I need to go any further with that. I think it's pretty straightforward. We're going to talk a little bit more about practically how we can handle if your intent is to do that, but it's a question of whether you're willing to do it and follow the standards. Now at this moment, I want to take a break, and I want to sort of just be sure to speak to those of you who, among us, and I'm sure we all have various forms of brokenness in the sexual areas of our lives, and just speak to those of us who have fallen in this area, but we have repented. May I remind you that the gospel of Jesus Christ promises full and complete forgiveness to those who truly are repenting of sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are told that the gospel grants to those who at one time were characterized by sexual immorality, but they then repented of that, and then they forsook that particular sin, those people find complete cleansing and full forgiveness from God. And instead of wearing a scarlet letter of sexual sin that forever defines your identity, through repentance and through faith in Christ, you can be completely forgiven and you can be set free from shame and guilt. Hallelujah. Read it, 1 Corinthians 6. It's a powerful, powerful passage. You were washed, he says. You were sanctified. You were set apart to Christ when you came in faith and repented of your sin. So please hear me on that. I'm not here to try to throw guilt and shame on anybody. I'm here to try to call us to God's standard and encourage us all to keep pursuing holiness of life, celebrating the fact that God is a forgiving and a gracious, gracious God. Now that leads me to our second point. There is an unchanging standard that God has made very clear. We need to make sure that we're not being duped by our culture today that tries to think we can reinvent everything. But let's look secondly now at the holy living. If we're going to pursue holy living, we must adopt practical strategies. And Paul knows that when he writes to the Thessalonians. 
And I think what he's going to set forth here is, essentially, boiling it all down, there are really two approaches to sexual ethics in this life. And the first is the sexual ethic approach of what we could call the way of the flesh. He's talking in verse 5 here about that particular approach. Pagans, unbelievers, people who are not Christians, we could say that most unbelievers are carried along by their inner passions and desires. They just sort of live in the moment. And they do whatever their bodies feel like doing. The urges of their bodies control their behavior. And so they're not led along by their minds so much as they are by their feelings and by the the urges of their bodies. And so whatever feels right, they do it. Verse 5. Like Gentiles who don't know God, they live in what? They live in lustful passion. They feed their passions a steady diet of sexual stimulation. And sadly enough, they... Those desires will carry them into all sorts of sexual sin. And if you ask them, they would say that they're doing what? I'm only doing what's normal. I'm only doing what feels right. And they feed their minds with all sorts of sexually suggested or explicit images or sounds or experiences. And the result is they tend to be controlled by their bodily passions. So that Moderation and any form of uh, abstinence are assumed to be impossible. Because why? Because they're just living by the passions of their bodies. Now that's one approach to life. Paul is very much aware of that. He says you go all around any city in Rome in first century Rome, you see people like that just like we do today. But then he contrasts that with the way of living in the power of the Holy Spirit which obviously only applies to a certain number of people, a a subsection of people, believers. And he says that's a dramatically different approach to life. He says to be under the control of the Holy Spirit and live life in a very sinfully depraved world, sexually crazed world, means that we live life with the Word of God controlling and richly dwelling in our hearts and in our minds. And if you compare Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16, you see that those two concepts together. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, has the same, produces the same results. And so, according to Galatians chapter 5, when he talks about living by the Spirit, we understand that the Spirit will enable us, and only the Spirit of God can enable us to resist carrying out the desires of the flesh. How does he do that? Well, it's because the mind of the spirit-controlled person provides all sorts of reminders and restraints for our bodies. So Paul urges believers in a culture that promotes unrestrained sexual expression to what? Look at verse 4. Each of you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. Vessel there means your body. Your body. You should know how to gain mastery over your body. You don't live like an animal. You live like a person who's what? Who lives before God, who has a mind that's given by God, and whose heart has now been changed, and therefore you're living out of a sense of honoring God in your everyday life. 
And so we learn to possess our bodies in holiness and honor. The implication is that we need to be careful what we allow our bodies, and this is so important, you be careful what you allow your bodies to see, to touch, to hear, and to feel. You're very cautious in what you're allowing to stimulate and bring into you the effects of your body and the responses of your body. So therefore, one important vital strategy is you resist sexual sin by not feeding your mind and your heart with sexually charged sounds and images and strong temptations that are presented to you outside the bonds of a heterosexual marriage. So if you're not married, you don't try to find great stimulation in that area. You're trying your best not to be put in that position because you're trying not to have the engine rev, rev up too fast, too soon. That's the point. An example of this, I think, is Billy Graham, the late Billy Graham, who is to be highly respected for adopting high standards in terms of how he conducted himself in his ministry over the years. It was a policy that said he would never travel alone. He always had another man with him, and he would never ever put himself in a situation with another woman that would be perceived as or give in to the temptation that something inappropriate could take place between him and this woman other than his wife. What a great practical way to what? Not put himself into a situation that could be tempting. Now there's one other obviously practical way to rein in bodily passions, and that is to be yielding to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, if we have the Scriptures in our minds and we're thinking of these truths day in and day out, we think about the fact that God is with us. People like Joseph are an example to us. When he is have sexual temptation put in front of him by his boss's wife, who not once, not twice, but repeatedly presented herself to him in a sexually suggested way, what did he do? He ran out of there. He didn't linger and talk and have a long, lingering conversation and Go find some remote place in the house to talk about it further. No, he got out of there. And so one of the most effective ways to curb sexual passions, I am suggesting to you, and it was suggested to me when I was in seminary, very helpful, is to starve those passions, those desires. You say, what are you talking about? Well, compare the desire, sexual desires of lust, you compare them to a lion and the more you feed that lion, the stronger it becomes, potentially overpowering you. But if you don't feed a lion for a period of time, what happens? That lion becomes weak. That lion becomes less threatening. And I am convinced such is true and the same is for our flesh and our bodily desires. Am I saying it's easy? No. But I am saying that's one practical strategy that Paul's giving in this text. Another strategy he gives to us, not only the idea of, of sort of controlling our bodies, gaining control of bodily passions, is to also remember we are to be, if we lead, if the Holy Spirit is leading us, we're to be compassionately respectful of other people. Compassionately respecting other people. I'm convinced, and this is, of course, found right here where he says not to defraud his brother. That doesn't mean 
he's just talking about males only. He's talking about a brother or sister in the faith. He's saying you're not going to defraud them if you, uh, or do not defraud other people in the sense of using them or being involved with them in sexual sin. So the Holy Spirit, my friend, is never going to lead a Christian to take advantage of another Christian by using them for sexual pleasure in a sinful manner. It's not meant to be. Having premarital sex with a young woman robs her future husband of what rightfully belongs to him. And sexual relations between same-sex couples clearly defiles the marriage bed. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. A married man, a married woman who commits adultery, violates the trust and breaks the vows and brings untold harm to the other spouse. If you really trace all of these things down at their root, at the core of sexual sin, you find that so much of it, pretty much all sexual sins, at the heart of them is greed. At the heart of them is idolatry. Idolatry that says, and this is Ephesians 5, 3, by the way, you can, you can check this out. It's all right there. Um, you, what you're saying is, you're saying that God is dethroned from the heart of my life and selfish desire now reigns in His place and I want what I want. And the God of sex is what I want. So that's the idol I'm going to lay down and I'm going to sin if I have to get it. And therefore, I will pursue that. Why? Because it's all about self and me having my desires fulfilled the way I want to, which is just the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, is love, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. So sexual sin leaves other people, essentially what Paul is saying here, sexual sin leaves other people cheated, robbed, robbed of respect and love and purity. And so urging someone to enter into sexual relations without making an unwillingness to make the commitment of a lifelong fidelity, devotion, and support in the covenant of marriage is to use and defraud and to sinfully take advantage of that person. Hear me, young ladies. Don't believe the man when he says, Oh, I love you, and then proceeds to encourage you to behave in ways that are in no way in keeping with that commitment. Purpose in your heart to respect other people. Ask God to help you. Permeate your mind with the sanctifying gospel. Go back again and again and say, what is it, the gospel? Jesus Christ loved the church, laid down his life in ultimate commitment for his bride. And what does that commitment look like? Selflessly serving her and sanctifying her. Never ever does Jesus defraud his bride. Never ever does he promote sin. He is the one who truly loves with a holy love. That is the gospel. And so we've looked at just skimming on the surface of a couple of strategies that Paul has alluded to in this text. He's talked about there's unchanging standards that we must adhere to in terms of sexual standards. He talks about adopting practical strategies. Well, if I'm going to live a holy life, 
that holy life advances with godly motives. And I'm just going to touch on these very briefly here in the text, looking at verses 6 to 8. Standards and strategies obviously don't provide motivation. You can have all the best strategies in the world. You can say, I know what all the rules are. I know what all the standards are. That does not mean you're going to pursue them and follow them. And so in verses 6 to 8, Paul says, No man should transgress or defraud a brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What are three incentives in this, in this text, in the th- verses 6 to 8, to maintain, pursue, and restore sexual purity? Three incentives. First is this, the reality of God's assessment or accountability, if you will. The God who knows everything about us is the God who will hold all of us to account in how we use his gift of sex. And if we indulge in unrepented, continuous sexual sin that offends God, we will not, you can be sure, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Scripture says it. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, Ephesians 5 5, Galatians 5. You see, God's wrath is reserved for those who live in a continuing lifestyle of disobedience. Continuing is the key word there. God is the avenger. He is the one who carries out justice. He is the one, you could say, Paul says, is the enforcer. In other words, if you break his laws and standards and you do it continually with never ever repenting of that, he says, you're going to have to stand before God and give full account of that. That is absolutely something that you've done defying him again and again and again and again. So your motive is not to offend God, because who wants to stand for him in that, in that capacity? A second motive for sexual purity is remembering God's plan for your life. Verse 7, God's plan for your life. If God, by his grace, has called you to himself, he's adopted you as his own child, then what? You are his special possession. That is, you were bought with a price, and therefore you belong to him, and therefore we are to glorify him in our bodies. If God has called us and he regenerates us, he brings us to life, then we are to remember, where am I going in light of what God is doing in my life? What what does the future look like for me if God has made me his child? Well, I'm set apart unto God. And therefore, I am to abandon my, in myself, not to sexual, I'm to, I'm to abandon all sexual immorality. And if I don't abandon sexual immorality, that is totally contradictory to where God is leading me in my life. God's purpose for my life is to, is to not make me more unholy. His purpose is to make me more holy over time in a, in a progressive way, more undefiled, And therefore, he wants to set me apart from sin, not set me apart so that I can sin. You see the difference? 
Paul says that should motivate you to now to pursue that kind of life in light of who you are and God's plan for you. And thirdly, don't have time to expand on these too much further, but I just want to look at the third motive here. Again, this is found uh, there in verse 8. It's to remember God's personal and present assistance. His personal and present assistance. Or you could say assistant uh, would be another way, but I'd I'd rather go with assistance. What am I talking about here? Well, he says at the end of verse 8, it is God who gives us His Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is given to every true believer. The Spirit of God is called a helper, the one who's called alongside of us to help us. And He's also, of course, described as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness. That is His nature. That is His character. That's what He's all about. He's all about helping people become holy. And He will never offer assistance which encourages you to compromise the standards of holiness and sexual purity. And whoever we share a sexual experience with that is sinful in its essence, that is, we are stepping out of the bounds and we're getting involved sexually with someone else, my friend, do you know, you, if, if you're a believer, you are bringing the Holy Spirit into that encounter. You can't deny that. I remember listening to a biblical counselor years ago in a, at a seminar. He was talking about using the, the attributes of God in the midst of biblical counseling. And he said, I had a guy sitting here. He had, sort of had a lousy attitude about his, his adultery that he was involved in. He was unwilling to turn from it. He was claiming to be a believer. And so this biblical counselor asked him a question. He says, now this adulterous relationship, he says, would you become intimate with this woman that you're involved in? Would you do that in front of your parents? He said, of course not. He said, would you do it in front of your church family? He said, that's ridiculous. He says, would you do it in front of God? And then the guy, biblical counselor, said, are you familiar with the scripture passage that says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place? He says, why why would you do that? And the guy says, well, I would never do that. He says, well, that's what you've been doing because God's been right there watching you the whole time. Somehow we want to live in this dichotomous world where we can somehow live in one realm and think that something's not happening, but it's the Holy Spirit is with you wherever you go. And His agenda is holiness. My friend, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by living a compromised life of sexual sin. Yield to the Spirit's control. Break off all forms of sexual sin. Follow the Spirit's leading and find lasting satisfaction in the glories of Jesus Christ who loved you, gave himself for you. And that's why I'm ending this morning with a quote from John Piper in your notes as he puts it so succinctly and so helpfully. Sin is what we do when our hearts are not satisfied with God. Therefore, let's satisfy our hearts with God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, as we bow before you today, we know that we live in a world that is upside down, absolutely just obsessed with out-of-control, promiscuous sex. And Lord, we know that this is indeed so contrary to your ways. Your standards have not changed. And you have loving and wonderful plans and reasons for all the restraints that you've put in place, Lord. And I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, deal with the hearts of all of us who are here today. And as we work through this lesson, lesson 10, Lord, in the week to come, looking at the wonders of sexual purity, and some of us need to be set free, Lord, from some of the sexual bondage that we're in. It is very difficult to break out of it, for sure. But Lord, we thank you that there is help and there's hope for those who struggle. And that we need to no longer live in the darkness, live in the shadows, live in secrecy. But Lord, we need to seek help. We need to be earnestly repenting before you. We need to take heed from what you've warned us about, Lord, in the word. And we need to flee. We need to run away from these areas. So, Lord, work in the hearts of each person who finds himself there today and come to their aid and help them escape. For those, Lord, who have done so in the past but still have this heavy cloud over their heads of shame and of guilt, I pray, Lord, would you help show them again afresh the glories of the gospel from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Help them to see the fullness of the washing and the sanctification that comes through Jesus. And Lord, full forgiveness, having those things thrown into the depths of the sea. Father, how we thank you for your grace. Oh, how we need your grace. We are of all a people who have fallen short in this area. And Father, I pray that you would also make us as your people godly examples those of us who are married, that our marriages would show forth what marriage is to look like for the next generation. Help them to see your plans are wonderful. Your plans are good. And we ask that you would, Lord, work mightily to break bonds where those need to be broken and strengthen the bonds of those that you desire to see become stronger. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.